Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Insider Risk podcast series. I'm Catherine Marinas-Yakub, a principal at Control Risks, and I will be your host for today. I'm really excited to kick off this first episode of our podcast series for National Insider Threat Awareness Month. This is the podcast that focuses on insider risk and what that means for businesses. In today's episode, we will explore some of the greatest challenges regarding insider risk management programs, as well as what makes them effective. Joining me today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Doug Thomas, who is the Managing Director for the Threat Detection and Analysis Office at JPMorgan Chase. He has spent the last 15 years heavily involved in establishing insider threat programs and built an outstanding program at Lockheed Martin, where he worked for nine years. Doug started his career in the U.S. government, where he spent 35 years, and retired as the Principal Deputy Director of Counterintelligence for the Director of National Intelligence. Welcome, Doug. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Catherine. I would say based on the discussions that you and I have had on insider risk in the past, we could probably spend the next three days just talking about insider risk. (laughs) But lucky for you, we'll limit that to one hour or less today. (laughs) It's great to have you here and to have you as our first guest on this series. So thank you. So let's talk about insider risk management programs. We have seen, especially in the last few years, particularly since COVID, an increasing interest from our clients in establishing these programs at their companies. And COVID, as you know, has really brought about a lot of varying types of insider risk whether they're accidental, unintentional, or malicious in nature. And, you know, looking at the beginning of COVID where everyone was in a remote workplace and all the vulnerabilities that that brought to companies and then moving forward to bringing people back into the office slowly and the vaccine and mask mandates that frequently resulted in angry employees and everything that came with that. And then we had the great resignation with so many employees in 2021 going on record for the most resignations and uh, a lot of the companies having to deal with employees taking a lot of critical assets with them to new employers. And then as we've seen in the last year, so many layoffs across multiple industries. And again, that fear and even the reality of employees taking those critical assets with them, many of them, you know, being intellectual property. And so I think this has really resonated with a lot of our clients where it has moved them to now want to do something and they come to us and say, can you help us out with this? And as you very well know, establishing and operating an insider risk management program can be very daunting and overwhelming. And especially if you do it correctly, right? Where you are really taking a holistic view of insider risk across the enterprise and involving not just one or two business functions, but really all those business functions across the enterprise that need to be involved in insider risk. And many companies don't even want to think about their employees' causing any kind of danger to their companies, whether it's unintentional or malicious. They're very trusting of their employees. And so when thinking about establishing a program, they don't want to 
see it as a witch hunt, right? And how that will be perceived by their workforce. And so now with this greater demand and need for insider risk programs, as you know, there are so many challenges that come with that. Everything from you know, personalities to budgets that you need to consider and messaging so you don't come off as being big brother. These are all types of various considerations that companies have to work through. And so today, I'd love to start off by talking about what some of those challenges are for establishing and operating an insider risk management program. So Given all the experience that you have, Doug, in establishing these programs, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen as far as some of the greatest challenges? Sure. I liked your preamble, by the way. Thank you. Especially when you use the word daunting. (laughs) I think the daunting part is at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest hurdles is culture. Coming from the intelligence community, there was more of a requirement to have something along these lines. But you go to the defense industry, there's a requirement there as well. Mm -hmm. But then you come into the private sector outside the defense industry, and it's not a requirement to have one. It's a good idea to have one, but it's not a requirement. Mm -hmm. So the culture becomes kind of a big deal because a lot of people think this is inherently a governmental role as opposed to something a firm or a corporation should actually take on and be responsible for. And unfortunately, that's not the case. The government doesn't have the resources to provide that kind of support for corporations. Now, after culture, everything else is kind of secondary. But there are things that are also a challenge. Getting the right headcount, hiring the right people, getting the budget, convincing data owners that their information is necessary for a program along these lines, competing interests or priorities that data owners might have, identifying the right data and where it is, identifying your critical assets so you can have a more effective insider threat program. But I'm sorry I come back to culture because Mm -hmm. it really comes back to does your senior leadership support the notion, support the idea of a program like this? And what comes after that is I think standing up a program is actually simpler than a lot of people think once you get by the culture. I think the execution of the program is a little bit harder than standing one up. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And you raise a lot of great points there, especially with culture. And that's frequently overlooked, I would say, by most companies, right? They just want to dig in and put those controls in and put the monitoring in without giving much consideration to how that can be perceived by the workforce. And Culture just goes by the wayside until it doesn't, right? (laughs) They realize that because they didn't pay attention to it, either their efforts are not being well-received or it's falling on deaf ears. And in working with clients in the past, we've had companies come to us and say, you know, we started an insider risk program and it didn't stick, right? We put all this money and effort into establishing a program and it was going okay for a point and then you know it just stopped and now we're back to zero and we found that a lot of the time it was because there wasn't a change management program in place and that is so essential 
on so many levels. So with the change management program, you consider the culture of the organization and you tailor the messaging based on that. You know, do you call it insider threat or insider risk or insider trust, right? It depends on the culture, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, and then the communications aspect of that. And equally as important is getting that buy-in and not just the buy-in from the leadership, right? And the executive at the executive levels, it's really getting that buy-in from all levels of the organization. And many companies don't think about using their workforce as the first and best line of defense, right? It's kind of an afterthought. They're very focused on kind of getting that buy-in from leaders and management, but kind of thinking of the workforce as an afterthought. So Mm. Absolutely. Culture is very critical in any program. As far as stakeholder buy-in, as you know, it's a team sport, right? Insider Threat is a team sport. And it can't just be cyber doing this alone. You really need, as I call it, the core four, right? You have cyber, HR, security, and legal. Can you talk a little bit about critical stakeholder buy-in and, you know, sometimes the challenge of getting everyone on board, right? And how do you deal with those competing interests when it comes to insider risk? Yeah, so that's a great question. I would say, and you kind of danced around in your lead up to the question there a little bit about communication and training and awareness. I think training awareness is a bedrock or one of the pillars anyway Mm -hmm. of an effective program sensitizing the workforce to this problem set and what to do about it when they're confronted with it. In a position I had before, we wanted to get the word out to the entire workforce relative to this problem set. And so we put together a focus group Mm. that would help us communicate the message. And we had the message go out from the CEO. And what that message was is my team drafted up the the paragraph, okay, and we put together a focus group. It was HR's idea. I wish it was mine, but it wasn't. <laughs> and we put together people from their 20s to their 70s in all different functions. And they took a look at that paragraph and they kind of ripped it apart. And what they focused on was the word report. You know, they said, I mean, it was almost together. They said, what do you want to create a culture of snitches? <laughs> so that's what you don't want to do because right. you don't want something that looks like a big brother, right? Yep. So they wanted to change the word report to engaged. It was a simple word change that I think helped with the messaging Mm -hmm. to the workforce of what the problem set is and for them to be engaged in helping us resolve this problem. Engaged for their sake, their coworkers' sake, the firm's sake, the reputation's sake, depending on what you do, national security's sake, if you're in the clear defense company. Right. So I think communications is a big deal. Winning the stakeholders over is interesting. So let's... Fast forward, let's say we've got the buy-in from senior leadership relative to their embracing the idea of an insider risk program. Now what you need to do is convince them that you're going to execute it in a manner that is in line with their corporate culture's values. Right. Okay. And that's where the hard part actually is. It's not establishing the program once you have everybody's buy-in. It's executing the mission. Right. How do you get senior leadership and make your argument to senior leadership that it's worthwhile to do this and to invest 
in a program when it's so difficult to pinpoint insider risk sometimes. Mm -hmm. And when there is an incident, it's frequently very difficult to measure what the damage is, right? So it's hard to say, well, we're going to, you know, put $500,000 towards or whatever number towards putting an insider risk management program together because, you know, this can cause $2 million worth of damage, right? It's hard to kind of pinpoint that number again, depending on what the business is in the industry. And leadership wants to see, well, what's the return on investment? So how do you go about making your argument, number one, for standing up an insider risk program and the benefits of that? And two, once you have that, how do you show that return on investment? Yeah, it's a good question because I think a lot of companies kind of go through this same thing because most companies or firms or corporations or even government agencies don't know if they ever had an insider before because it never came to light, right? Yeah. So why are you building a program and investing in a program here when we've never had that problem? Well, they just don't know they haven't <laughs> had that problem yet. Okay? Yes. <laughs> so that becomes a challenge. So what you do is you rely on other case examples. You rely on government information. You rely on cases that have happened and been convictions have been made in like companies. So other financial institutions, other pharmaceutical institutions, oil and gas institutions, you rely on those kinds of case examples to show that this does actually happen. Okay. Right. And you bring in people who have been there, done that, and can speak the game a little bit, if you will. So they have a little credibility when they're speaking about this problem set. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Along those lines, you, what you don't want to do is surround yourself with people who think the sky is falling, okay? Right. Because there isn't a bad apple behind every tree. So you got to be careful about how that's messaged to the leaders as well. One thing that we did in my past lives and in this life is you put together a robust governance structure, Yep. okay? And that governance structure is made up of people who are senior enough to understand the problem set and to bubble things up to the most senior people in the C-suite, right? So you'll have HR on there. You'll have legal on there. Uh, you might have fraud on there. You might have security and cyber on there. If you're in the financial industry, you'll have people from second line and third line on there. Um, and it's these people that will help guide the program. Now, why is the governance structure so important? One, they actually bring a diversified view to the problem set. Right. Because they're not from that background, so they have a different view, and they can help tailor it to that particular culture and that particular firm. But the other thing is, when I talked about executing the mission in line with their corporate values, that governance structure, the fact that you have a robust governance structure, helps sell the message that this is being executed in line with the corporation's values, because they're yes. on board with it. They're help directing, dictating, guiding, mm -hmm. advising. Okay. So that governance structure is pretty important for our program. It really is. And it has to be that cross-functional collaboration, right? Representation from across the organization. Mm -hmm. And I found that when I've established that cross-functional body, there was another kind of benefit to it. And that was you're bringing some of the naysayers 
of an insider risk program together under the tent with the supporters so that, again, this goes back to the buy-in piece, right? So everyone is together as a group and you kind of have that kind of group sync mentality happening. And it's better for them to voice their concerns internally within this group that is dealing with insider risk than being on the outside trying to shoot down at it, right? And try to shoot it down and make it go away. And I have found that over time, those naysayers kind of came on board and realized the value of having a program in place and how much that helps mitigate a lot of those threats and vulnerabilities to an organization. And the other benefit that I've seen as well in having kind of that cross-functional team together is that person that's representing their business function has oversight over what is happening in their business function from an insider risk standpoint. So when people move in and out of that business function, they're aware of it and they're aware of accesses or removing accesses, or having to move accesses to a different business function. And they are are also aware of the critical assets within their business function and protecting those critical assets. And they're also the representative to communicate what is happening from an insider risk perspective down to their workforce. And then you also have that bottom up. So they're getting feedback from their workforce that can be brought up to leadership and management. So, so many benefits there in having that, that yeah, group. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. The other part of your question that I didn't answer was, how do you show a return on investment? Yeah, such an important question. Yeah, it time. is. And so I think metrics matter. You want metrics to help tell the story, yep. right? So you got to be careful what you're measuring, mm-hmm. right? And one of the ways that I've done in the past, not in this current role yet, But one of the ways I've done in the past is we would have a case that had a lot of insider threat smell to it, okay? (laughs) And it would come out that it was proven proactively, okay? We stopped the documentation from leaving the firm, right? We then turned that documentation that could have been compromised had we not caught it over to the subject matter experts who know that documentation like the back of their hand. They know how much money went into the development of that widget, okay? They know how much money will likely come into the firm based off the selling of those widgets, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you can give that information to the subject matter expert and he or she can come back and say, yes, if this documentation would have been compromised to a competitor, it would have cost us X millions of dollars. Right. Right. So that's a way of return on investment. And I'm not just throwing that out there as something hypothetical. I'm telling you, that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. And it was in the billions. I believe it. And how was that received when you actually had that breakdown and put in black and white what that dollar figure is? Yeah. The nice thing is programs like this do get a fair amount of attention. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about the case that I just talked about, we had a couple of them. It was a chief technology officer who told our board of directors about this win. Okay, it didn't have to come from me. 
It came from our chief mm-hmm. technology officer. And that garners a lot of support down the road. That's great. What a great success story. As far as other metrics, Doug, what would you recommend for measuring success with a program and showing value? Yeah, so the measurements that I'm quite comfortable with are, let's say you have a program in place, okay? It's proactive, okay, rather than reactive. It's proactive. Mm -hmm. And you see concerning behaviors and you take those concerning behaviors and you run with it, okay? And then it manifests into something that might be even more concerning. So I look at the number of alerts, the number of alerts that turn into referrals for investigations, and the number of documentation that we stop from leaving the firm, okay? Sometimes people look at outcomes relative to people terminated or people who receive some kind of a reprimand, and you can do that, okay? But I look at number of alerts versus referrals versus some kind of action, okay? Because you also want to track false positives. You don't want to have a lot of false positives in a program, right? You kind of want to limit that because that's upsetting to management, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. But those are some of the metrics that I think win the day for telling your story. Yes, absolutely. I have also come across companies who, you know, when they are approached about putting in an insider risk program and they don't want to make the investment. And when you tell them about the millions that they can lose in intellectual assets, they say, it's okay. You know, we'll take the hit, Mm -hmm. right? For many industries and companies, it could be a drop in the bucket rather than go through that hassle, if you will, of standing up an insider threat program and all that comes with it. And they do that. But I think they don't really consider the reputational damage that can linger from something like that or the headline risk that they can incur. And once you get that reputational damage, it's very difficult to gain that customer trust. And let alone, I think many companies don't think about the long term, is if IP is stolen, they can go out of business. And that is something that I believe, really needs to be reinforced, especially with the workforce of, hey, we're all gainfully employed. You know, we have such a corner on the market in our industry. Let's keep it that way, right? And let's do everything we can to protect what we have so that we can continue to be successful in this industry. And But many companies don't think that all the way through until it's too late. Have you Run across that. I'm actually glad you brought that up the way you did, Catherine, because it's true. When you're going down the path of money, I was thinking the exact same thing as you. A lot of them, it's a write-off, okay? But what they don't like to write off is their reputation. Their reputation is everything. And you're right. Depending on the business you're in and the size of your company, just losing a little bit of intellectual property could bankrupt you, Okay. So depending on who you are, how big you are, how diversified you are, losing that trade secret or those intellectual properties could be absolutely devastating for Mm -hmm. your firm. Your bigger firms will probably survive a bankruptcy type stuff like that, but they will take a hit on their reputation. And I'll tell you, that C-suites care very much about how they're viewed by customers, clients, potential customers, potential clients. So true. But how much of that discussion that we just talked about makes it all the way up to the C-suite, right? Or the board members. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to start off a little bit 
in a different area here. To try to get heavy investment up front for a program is actually quite hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the way I've already always approached this, whether I, I was in the government or in different industries, it's treat me like a proof of concept. Okay. Allow me to, with a very small budget, hire a couple of people who have the right skill set and the right background to see what we can do in the first year, first year and a half. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I approach that, it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. All right. Because you will turn over some ugly things during that year, year and a half to the point where people go, hmm, okay, we're a little bit of more of a believer now. Okay. Right. We will invest a little bit more. And before you know it, you will have a more robust program that's effective, that's proactive, right? So I don't go in and ask for the moon. I go in and say, hey, take a chance on us. Let's see what we can do for the firm, okay? And that seemed to work pretty well. But during those discussions, when you're trying to sell the idea of why you need a program like this, reputation should come up. It should, yes, definitely. So. Your incremental approach is spot on. And, you know, we talked about the overwhelm that comes with wanting to establish a program. And when you start looking in a little bit, you're going to uncover things. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I recently connected with someone from a company that I spoke with last year. And we talked about establishing an insider threat program And they went silent and I recently ran into them and they said, yeah, you know, after we spoke, we turned the lights on and found a lot of dead bodies about insider risk, Mm -hmm. right? Just to kind of, kind of see what their landscape was like. And he said, and there were a lot of dead bodies and we just shut the lights and closed the door because we don't even know where to start. And I hear that so many times from clients. It's really scary and intimidating. And then you're dealing with privacy issues and civil liberties, right, as you start looking into that. Going back to what you said, Doug, and, you know, starting incrementally, if you have a limited budget, what do you like to do first, you know, when you're given money? What are the first steps that you like to take? I think the first steps are making sure you hire the right people, okay? I've come across too many companies and firms that hired very good people much smarter than I am, but they didn't have the background or the experience to speak Mm -hmm. about this. It was harder for them to sell the idea of why a program like this is necessary. I think training and awareness is a big deal. I really do. I I think sensitizing the workforce and the senior leadership to this problem set. And you know, one thing that you can also do is talk about nation states. Yeah. Because there are some nation states who are quite sophisticated and who are quite aggressive at going after intellectual property and trade secrets to further their economic woes as well as their national security efforts. So you get into those discussions with people. The other thing that you do, at least I've done anyway, is I consider part of the insider threat program, insider risk program is workplace violence. A lot of leaders Mm -hmm. do not want to see something bad happen within their offices that probably could have been avoided or at least identified early on and something happened Mm -hmm. to correct the path that person was going on. So it's just different angles to approach the people who make the decisions relative to embracing a program like this or even funding a program like this or providing the data you need to have a program like this. Right. 
So you raise a good point about workplace violence programs and putting those in place, or if they have a program in place, having an assessment done to see if they're up to par. And we've definitely seen since COVID an increase in that and doing that. I would say probably more than almost any other area Mm. of insider risk. And I would say probably the IP theft is on the heels with number two. And then, you know, looking at theft as a number three, just because of the downturn economy and employees, you know, trying to take advantage of making some extra money here and there, right, through the company. So, yeah, the workplace violence issue is a big one and top of mind to many of our clients. You mentioned training and awareness, and I wholeheartedly agree. And many of our clients like to start off there as well. And I've noticed just on the awareness side, when I have done assessments and I'm interviewing clients across the organization for those assessments, that just the questions that I ask them gets them thinking about what they're doing or not doing to mitigate insider risk. And just based off of those questions and those interviews, I find out later from clients that hey, I've completely changed the way that I do things in the office now just based on the questions that you were asking me. And we also noticed that reporting went up because people started kind of, you know, linking behaviors and best practices and, you know, not following those best practices. So that goes a a really, really long way, even the awareness piece before you even get into a formalized training course. Yeah. And I think there's a bit of an art to training and awareness too, because you don't want to, you don't want to scare people, right? Right. You don't want to think the sky is falling. You know, you want to approach it in a way that it's useful for them. It's information that they could use. It's information that maybe even their family members can use. But it's just a lot of times hearing that information for the first time, believe it or not, okay, is quite helpful for somebody to wrap their arms around a problem set. You had also mentioned, when talking about the challenges, you had mentioned the knowing critical assets. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to kind of pull the thread on that a little bit because this is very near and dear to my heart and where I like to start insider risk programs. As you know, there's not enough money or time to look at everything, right, in an organization as far as what you're going to protect. And so I always like to start with, looking at the critical assets kind of as the core of a program and the importance of mapping critical assets and knowing where your critical assets are within your organization and external to your organization for any trusted third parties that have authorized access to those critical assets and knowing where they're located, who the owners are and who has access. And it's surprising how many companies don't do this. And yet, while it's such a painstaking process and a long process, once you do it the first time, you're just tweaking, you know, every six months or Mm -hmm. every year. But what that really does is help prioritize where to focus your efforts when you're starting off with your insider risk program and where to focus your monitoring and extra vetting for those high consequence positions Have you seen 
the mapping of critical assets as something that's regularly done in organizations in your experience? And also, when you do raise it, do you get resistance or are organizations pretty open to doing it? Yeah, so I agree with you about how important critical assets are with regards to having a more effective program, okay? Mm -hmm. Most companies that I've dealt with, and I've probably talked to over a thousand companies, have not taken the time and effort Mm -hmm. to identify what their most critical assets are. They know what their trade secrets are, they know what their intellectual property is, but taking it a step further and identifying what those critical assets are. And you're right, it is a painstaking process to go throughout a firm and identify what those critical assets are because it takes a lot of communications as well. So for instance, let's say you're a clear defense company and you are building the next generation weapon system, right? That happens to be a jet, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it can't be a critical asset isn't the airplane. That's just an airplane. What one or two nuggets within that jet makes it the most impressive weapon system in the world, right? right? And that's what you want to protect. You don't want to protect the whole airplane, right? So it is a challenging journey, but it's a journey that you have to take. Mm-hmm. There are, again, going back to nation states, there are nation states out there that are seriously, aggressively looking at things like artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. quantum, machine learning, you name it. There's a carbon nanotubes, you know, that kind of stuff. So you have to understand what those things are, okay? So you can put protective measures around those things. You can do more tailored training and awareness to the people who have access to the day-to-day critical assets. But you're right. Most companies don't go down that journey. It's hard. It is. But like you said, once you do it the first time, it's just a matter of keeping it updated and adjusting it now and then. It's simple after that. It's the first time you do it is what's challenging. Right. The other difficulty of it is it's usually just not one person from a business function that's doing it, right? Because then they have to go to line managers and line managers may have to go another level down, right? Mm -hmm. To kind of really look into where all the critical assets are and who has access. However, once it's done, then there's such an awareness that comes out of that of who's touching what, where, (laughs) right? And if there is an incident that happens, so if it's an incident where you see what critical asset has been compromised, then you're able to go back and see, well, who touches that critical asset? And so that automatically triages the investigation Mm -hmm. because you have your pool right there as opposed to if you hadn't done the critical asset mapping. I mean, you're just looking at needle in the haystack, right? And conversely, if there's an individual who you're looking at because of a potential or actual incident, then you're quickly able to see everything that they have access to as far as critical assets and then can take action very quickly to cut off their accesses and shut everything down. So that works both ways. And is so valuable. And I think a lot of companies don't see it that way and don't appreciate the value. But when times are tough and you're running around dealing with an incident and you have to react quickly, that makes all the difference. I agree with you. You know, I want to 
go back to a comment you made a couple minutes ago about third-party providers. You know, once you have a pretty robust program in place, you need to start looking at your supply chain. Yes. Whether you're in the government or in the industry, your weakest link is your supply chain. Okay. I'm not knocking any suppliers out there whatsoever, but what I'm just saying is from a vulnerability standpoint, your supply chain might be your weakest link. Mm -hmm. They're probably a much smaller company than you are. And so they don't have the robust network safety security in place. They don't have insider threat programs in place, most likely. (laughs) So they are an avenue for people to get at your goods as opposed to your employees getting at your goods. So you really want to have a program that extends to the supply chain. You do. And that's usually like a phase two, right? Mm -hmm. Once you have your program in place. And I think that the target data breach incident many years ago really put third parties on the map, right? As far as vulnerabilities for insider risk. And at the time, it was an HVAC company of all things. And they were provided accesses to credit cards and customers and account information, which they should have never had in the first place. There was so much that was wrong with that case, but it really, I think, opened our eyes to, wow, we need to really check out our third parties and do they really have only the accesses that they need and what kind of security measures do they put in place and really holding them accountable and auditing them and vetting them. I think that's the other big thing that we've seen in the last couple of years since COVID is because of the limits with suppliers and vendors, right? The just disruption of the supply chain. It was, we'll take anyone who can deliver, right? Just to keep operations Mm -hmm. going. And many of them were not vetted. And then they suffered the consequences from that because they went unvetted and had a lot of issues. Yeah. So we talked about the third parties and we've talked about the importance of critical assets. One question that we get asked a lot is, is this a cyber issue? Is this a security issue? followed by who should own the program, where does it sit, who leads it. I certainly have my opinions on that, and I think a lot of it depends on the organization and the cultures we talk, but I would love to hear your take on this. Yeah, so you asked a question, you just answered my question. (laughs) It's true. I've seen this in HR. I've seen this run out of legal. I've seen it run out of security, and I've seen it run out of the cyber side of the house, mm-hmm. okay? And compliance. I've seen compliance And compliance. Well. Yeah. <laughs> and you said something at the very beginning in your preamble that this is a team sport. Mm-hmm. It truly is a team sport. And all those players we just talked about have a major stake in this, whether right. they're data owners or stakeholders from a supporting it standpoint. But somebody has to be anointed that you have the role and responsibility for executing this mission. Okay. Now, where that sits, I don't know if it really matters as long as people honestly approach it from a team sports standpoint. I have my bias. Okay. But I do think it comes down to the culture. Mm -hmm. There are some cultures who don't invest a lot in physical security. Okay. Right. And there are some cultures that invest a lot in the cyber side. 
So maybe that's where it should sit. Okay, as long as they hire the right people to execute the mission, and as long as it's a team sport, right? I can make the argument from both sides, the chief security officer owning it or the chief information security officer owning it. I can make that argument both ways. It really comes down to the organization and the culture. Yeah. Have you seen it be more effective in one over the other for any reason? I think I have too much of a bias for that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because I think the places I've been, it's been effectively managed. It's been robust. It's been supported. And the times that I've done it, it's been out of the chief security officer's office. But don't get me wrong. Cyber is critical (laughs) in this. It is. But, you know, it comes back to to have a proactive program. Where's your best information? A lot of people think it might be day loss prevention or something like that. In my opinion, it's not. It is HR's type of information. If you want to get ahead of a problem, you want to understand behavioral type anomalies as opposed to something that happened after the fact, right? Information has been downloaded or information has been sent to a Gmail account or something like that. Well, it might be a little bit late there. If you want to get ahead of the problem, you really need HR-related information. Right. Yes. All great points. Have you come across companies where they say, oh, yeah, we have an insider risk program, and they really don't. There's nothing formal in place, and what they consider an insider risk program is cyber talking to security. Yeah. <laughs> have you come across Oh, that? Yeah. I've seen all walks, quite frankly. (laughs) When you go and talk to a firm, the firm will ask you to come in, have a chat with their people, and take a look at their program. And when you do that, it might be a DOP program. Again, they think they have a robust insider threat program. Mm -hmm. They have an important part of an insider threat program, but it's not a holistic program at all, okay? I've seen people who will have a program, they'll hire one or two people, and they just do training awareness, okay? And that's an important part right. of an insider risk or insider threat program, but it's not a holistic program. There are a lot of things that make up a holistic program, and those are just parts of it. You know, one thing I get asked a lot, too, is why should we invest in a program like this? Mm. And I guess I'm an old guy. I've seen a lot of examples of things that have gone bad. I would twist that around a little bit. I don't understand how people can afford not to invest yeah. in a program like this because I just think the badness is happening in their backyard already and they don't so even true. know it. They don't. They don't know it. And because they don't have a spotlight on it. So no. they're not going to know it. But once you shine a spotlight on it, even with a small... <laughs> the dead body dead count, <laughs> Yeah. You will, you will turn over some things that make you pause and stop and... And question, why are things like this? Right. Talking about not being aware that it's happening, I've seen companies deliberately avoid, even when we say, we think you have an issue, you know, just based on some interviews. And I call it the ostrich concept, where they just Mm want to bury their heads in the sand and pretend as if it's not even happening because they just, they don't know how to deal with it. They don't want to deal with the privacy issues. And it's just too uncomfortable. And they don't realize the damage that can continue to perpetuate if they just let it go. You know, you brought up privacy a couple of times now, and it's important, okay? Mm -hmm. I will tell you, I have privacy on speed dial as I'm building a program (laughs) Mm -hmm. and while I'm executing that program. Privacy is a big deal. It is an important aspect in our society, and especially if you're doing things overseas, like Mm -hmm. GDPR in Europe, okay? 
privacy is a big deal. Civil liberties is a big deal. So I'm going to build a program that's going to be in step with civil liberties and privacy. Okay. And that goes a long way too when you're speaking about corporate values. Right. It definitely does. And privacy is top of mind for especially the leadership, right? And the executives. And it has to absolutely be considered from the beginning. And especially as you're going through an investigation, that's where the rubber really meets the road, right? Mm-hmm. And and having those protocols in place before something happens so you're not fumbling <laughs> with yeah. privacy issues as you're, you know, trying to conduct an investigation. Well, Doug, I think this brings us to the end. I can certainly keep going <laughs> for a while and talking to you about insider risk. It's always so informative to exchange ideas with you. And thank you so much for being our guest here on our podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. I have quite a bit of passion for this topic. I love it. Thank you so much. For more information on insider risk, please go to controlrisks.com slash insider risk.